Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business, as always. I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing, Chris, and how was your holiday? A holiday was great, Eric, and then I spent the last several days at the Sports Betting Conference in New Jersey, so lots going on, and look forward to chatting about some of that today. Absolutely. And uh, as we get uh, through the final sprint here of 2021 and uh, a lot more business unfolding here before everybody breaks for the uh, Christmas holidays and uh, the end of the year, a lot to unpack there. Uh, uh, We've got uh, a day of reckoning that's uh, unfolding uh, with Major League Baseball, the day that we thought might come and in fact has. Sinclair actually making some progress on their fledgling effort to develop a regionally based director consumer uh, streaming product and some interesting funding news in the world of fantasy sports in India. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Juan Arseniegas. He's a managing director with a uh, investment company called 777 Partners. And uh, most notably, this is a company that recently acquired Genoa of Syria. So stick around for that conversation. We're going to unpack uh, what that firm is up to. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side with the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Juan Arseniegas, Managing Director of Florida-based alternative investment firm 777 Partners. The outfit has been rapidly developing a robust portfolio of sports entertainment and media properties, perhaps led by the recent acquisition of Syria's Genoa, but also including streaming platform Fanatas, Chilean agency 1190 Sports, women's soccer-focused at Atlanta Media, and equity stakes in La Liga's Sevilla FC and British basketball's London Lions, among other assets. Arseniegas joined 777 Partners in 2016 following a lengthy background in the financial industry that included stints at Bank of America Merrill Lynch as well as Credit Suisse. Juan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So for the benefit of our listeners, I think probably a good place to start if you can just sort of give an overview of your firm and particularly how it may differ. You know, we've obviously got a lot of different VC shops and investment shops out there. What are you guys about and how are you different? Yeah, sure. That's a great way to start. Just because a common misunderstanding is that, that we're a fund, nothing against that structure, obviously, but we, we are structured as a holding company. So we like to think of our structure as a permanent capital structure, essentially allowing us to have an infinite investment horizon. And uh, essentially, it allows us to hold companies for a very long time if we want to. In fact, uh, infinitely if we want to. But obviously, there would be companies that we intend to sell at some point and monetize. So it just gives us a lot of flexibility. And not only is it a benefit for us, because, you know, sometimes suddenly your fund matures at a, at a point in the economic cycle that you may not be an optimal point for you to exit, but you have pressures to exit an investment. So it's not only a benefit for us, the way we're structured in our opinion, but it's a, it's a benefit sometimes to our target uh, investments because they may not want to be subjected to an arbitrary investment timeline that may be at odds with their plans. And you know we've been able to differentiate ourselves by by, by making people understand that we are able to build a long-term project 
in some cases that has made a huge difference for us coming to the top of the list as potential partners to, to investments that we've concluded. Juan, I understand that you uh, you invest a lot in sports, obviously, which is why we're talking, but you invest in other sectors or certain other sectors as well. Within the sports space, it seems like you have a number of different types of properties. You've got teams, you've got tech companies, you've got... A, is there a common theme or thesis that weaves through your sports assets? Well, yeah, there's uh, you know technical and financial reasons, and there's uh, interest and passion re- uh, reasons. And I think the best of both worlds is when you can marry those both things. From an investment perspective, we tend to target you know predictable, long dated cash flows, and that's something that you get in the sports world. You know, both teams and media rights themselves essentially monetize uh, their properties via long-term contracts with very predictable cash flows. While while a sports team may have certain buckets of very unpredictable revenues like competition revenues, you know, and qualifying for European competitions, media rights, you know, unless you get relegated, they are very predictable. And so from an investment perspective, that is very attractive. Also from an investment perspective, we've seen, especially through COVID, how resilient uh, sport properties are. It's really the king of contents. And we love to be on this side of the equation and, and, you know, being rewarded by continuing to provide that content that everybody wants to watch. From, from a passion perspective, you know, I grew up in, in Bogota in Colombia where, uh, where soccer or, or football is the number one sport. I grew up going to the stadium with my dad to watch the Santa Fe games, which is one of the two teams of Bogota. And, uh, you know, while I've worked in many industries from an investment perspective, it's always been a desire and a passion for me to end up doing what I'm doing right now. It's a, it's a dream come true, and it's a, it's a great way, way to marry both things. I mentioned in the intro uh, the deal that you just made a couple of months ago for Genoa. You're not alone. There's been a uh, pretty quickly rising uh, North American interest in Syria. But from your perspective, what was the rationale behind that particular deal? Ours or in general? Yours. Yeah. Well, so I think from our perspective, investing in sports properties in the U.S. has become increasingly difficult. You know, the price points are incredibly elevated and you need to come with just an incredible amount of capital in order to participate in a meaningful way. Whereas in Europe, there are very attractive properties that are increasing in value that, uh, that generate just the same amount of passion, but at much more attractive entry points. So that's one reason which I think uh, is not only, not only applies to us, but you know, you've seen a lot of North American capital directed towards, towards uh, Europe. You know, for us, we were trying to find a club that had a very, very strong fan base, a very historical club, you know, a club that maybe was not in the best shape coming out of the crisis where we thought we could really make an impact, where we thought we could really get hands-on and, you know, attack some of the vulnerable areas. And, uh, you know, Genoa kind of ticked all of those boxes for us. Italy itself, it's a, it's a fantastic place for football. You know, it has been at the top of the world at some point. It's been somewhat in decline over the past years. But, you know, we think us together with other people that are currently investing in the league have an opportunity to really professionalize the league as a team of owners 
and and slowly, you know, revert back to the mean. I think it's not undoable. And um, yeah, we're excited. We're excited to participate in the in the growth of the league itself. Juan, some U.S. investors are concerned about buying European soccer clubs because they feel it's going to be hard for them to manage. It's going to be hard to get their arms around what's happening, you know, several thousand miles away. How did you think about that? And how are you actually executing some of these hands-on changes that you said from a, from a day-to-day basis? How does that work? Yeah. So there, there's two ways. You know, day one, we do have presence in Europe. You know, we're in the process of opening an office in London and we have uh, 777 employees scattered throughout uh, Europe, namely one of our operating partners who lives in Madrid is spending every week in, in Genoa. You know, hopefully for his sake and his families, that, that'll, that'll change eventually. But, but he's, uh, he, he's really being our man on the ground um, every day. So that's, you do need people on the ground. It's very difficult to, to manage, but, uh, you know, we do have sophisticated people that, that work for us that are doing the work. And, you know, second is really identifying the best existing assets in the club in terms of human assets, but complementing them with, you know, new people that, that you can trust and that you're going to empower to run the operations on your behalf, because realistically from Miami, from this air conditioned office, it gets very difficult. From a media rights perspective in Europe, the, the marketplace does seem to be a little less frothy than what we're seeing here in the United States. And as you get more involved in the European team business here, do you anticipate that getting that changing in Europe and becoming more like what we're seeing here in the United States? Or what is your sense of what the pathway looks like from a media rights perspective? I think the the U.S. is light years ahead of, of any other market in terms of media rights. I think it's a just completely different landscape here. The U.S. has, has absolutely succeeded. You know, you see the Premier League, honestly, doing an incredible job. I think it's going to be very difficult to, even in the medium term, to try to approach what they've done. But, you know, we love identifying undervalued assets. That's part of our investment thesis across our verticals. A lot of the media rights work that we're doing is in South America, where I think the, the media rights are most undervalued. Like I said before, I think Italy is definitely not where it needs to be. It's definitely not where it should be. I think it requires a certain level of investment, you know, in production quality, in hospitality, in stadiums, which has been an incredible impediment in Italy specifically for the quality of the content to really improve and deserve additional media rights. So, you know, we're talking about completely two different worlds when we talk about the U.S. and Italy. And I don't, I don't want to be over ambitious to, to even think that in the medium term can get on that same playing field. But there is tangible opportunity to improve the, the situation in Italy, in my opinion. So you mentioned the Premier League deal, and obviously there is tremendous growth and opportunity in the U.S. How do you plan on capitalizing on that from the perspective of your club or the league overall? Is there a lot of upside in the U.S. left for you guys as you think about growing this? I think soccer is is a, is a very big growth opportunity in the U.S. I think that, you know, establishing better distribution, improving the quality and internationalizing the brands in Europe can have a meaningful impact on how much revenue can generate from, from international markets, namely the U.S. Is the, the U.S., in my opinion, is the best uh, market for sports in, in the world. The Americans have an incredible capacity to digest sport content both from a you know passion perspective from an investment perspective there's i think there's space here for growth for sure 
and us individually, we plan to uh, to establish partnerships with brands, with companies in the U.S. We think that that's one area where we can really help the club meaningfully on the commercial side. You mentioned before some of the barriers to entry uh, for ownership of a U.S.-based team. Having said that, are there some opportunities that you are looking for? Is that potentially part of the pathway for your portfolio? Honestly, not not at the moment. It is also not in our immediate pipeline. I, I can't say that we'll never look at things right now, but we are actively looking at, at other opportunities and in, in, in the sports world. And, and at the moment, they are not in, in North America. What do you think about the difference between being a control owner or an LP owner? Do you mostly now want to look at control deals or are you looking at both? Obviously, Arctos and others in the last couple of years have really started this trend of private equity investing in LP stakes. What's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, we in general have been traditionally a control investor. Only a handful of companies in our portfolio we own less than 50% of. You know, that said, sports brings a different complexity to the equation because obviously there's restrictions on owning control investments in, in teams that may potentially face each other in European competitions in the same league. You outright cannot have uh, meaningful stakes in more than one team. So we'll have to be flexible in navigating that because obviously we want to, you know, stay true to the, to the regulations. We are not dogmatic about having minority stakes, by the way, on, in companies. It's a matter of knowing very well who uh, we're partnering with, who has control you know, of, of our money, of our investment, and ensure that we have a good relationship with them and we can structure the right way to, to, to invest together. So, yeah, it's something that we'll have to, to take into account. But primarily, we would prefer to be in control of our future. There are a number of segments uh, within the sports industry that have really been transforming the space this year. And I'm referring to things like NFTs and crypto, sports betting here in the United States, the collectible space overall. Where does your firm potentially figure into a number of these emerging trends? Yeah, look, we, um, we, we are involved on the issuer side. You know, we're currently working at Genoa with multiple different partners trying to identify the right partner on fan tokens, on NFTs. It's a very fast-growing market. I think it's at $14 billion right now, projected to, to get to something like $75 billion by 2025. It's something that if you're not paying attention to, I don't know what you're doing. It, it also adds an incredible amount of complexities. Uh, first of all, there's, there's a lot of companies out there that may not be up to snuff to regulation, particularly if you are a, a U.S. investor. So you have to be very careful who you partner with. And then, you know, there's a there's regulatory risk that, you know, right now is not considered an investment asset class. It's considered a collectible. So it's not highly regulated. There's, you know, a small number of people with very large shareholdings of, uh, you know, if you could call it shareholdings or, or, or rather holdings in general of NFT products that should should they decide to liquidate their large holdings at some point, it could create vast price swings. So, you know, I think people need to be careful, especially if you're investing in it. If you're investing in in the asset class, as I prefer to call it, as a, as a fan, because you want to collect a piece of memorabilia, I think that's great and, and clubs should welcome that. But if people are speculating with those holdings, I think that adds a, a set of complexities for, for everybody involved. And I think people should be cautious. 
but it's it's an area that, that like I said, if you're not looking into how to get involved, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Another area that has been uh, a phenomenon of sorts over the last year, year and a half has been the emergence of SPACs, not only in sports, but across the ecosystem. There's certainly been some ups and downs in that SPAC marketplace. Kind of what's your view on SPACs? And do you find yourself ever competing with SPACs for assets that you guys are looking at? Yeah, I'm a complete in complete support of SPACs. You know, I've, having multiple opportunities to access liquidity it's always good not bad and you know having SPACs be one more way to do that you know I'm all for it obviously there's been a little bit of cleansing of the exuberance that we saw at the beginning of the year but it's a great comeback story you know there there they are they're back and uh, you know back with a vengeance I think that's a incredibly valid way for companies to access liquidity and uh, yes you know it's another competitor in the space that should be taken seriously. We definitely see us competing, but potentially participating in a SPAC in the future. Well, clearly a lot happening with 7-7 Partners, something we're going to be tracking across all of the platforms of sport business. Uh, but for now, we want to thank Managing Director Juan Arseniegas for uh, spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, great fun. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Juan Arseniegas again from 777 Partners for spending that time with us and turning our attention to the news of the week here. December 1st came and went. Uh, this was a big day on the Major League Baseball calendar, really for years, knowing that this was going to be the expiration, the prior five-year collective bargaining agreement. Well, that day came and went. There was not a new deal in place, and it's uh just after the expiration of that deal, Major League Baseball team owners, as expected, officially imposed a lockout on the players. And that uh, creates the league's first work stoppage since 1995, the first lockout since 1990. And that essentially puts a freeze on all player activity. No signings, no trades, no players working out of team facilities, and everything is on ice until such point that uh, the parties can work this out. For those that may not be following along uh, in terms of all of the specific issues at play here, I'll try to encapsulate this pretty quickly here, that the players, uh, the MLB Players Association, they would like to ex expand some of the major historical salary drivers in the sport, namely arbitration and free agency, to more and younger players. We've seen this big push across the game where the talent is skewing younger and younger, and a lot of those players are playing you know, essentially at or near minimum level salaries in the league. And so they would like to move some of those more robust pay drivers down to that side of the talent pool. The owners, from their perspective, a lot of what they're interested in is something fairly close to the status quo. And the status quo, particularly prior to the pandemic, has been really good for them over the this past five-year term of the collective bargaining agreement. They've seen soaring revenues. We've got new deal TV deals kicking in. And uh, the average player salary has actually gone down a little bit during this time. So it's essentially a situation where their uh, player uh, costs have been fairly static and revenues gone way up. So it's been a very good situation from the ownership side. So 
you know, it doesn't uh, really stand as a surprise to see them be interested in something fairly close to what they've already been experiencing. So we've got a pretty broad philosophical difference between the two sides at this point. And, you know, even though we're still two months away from uh, roughly the start of spring training, there was already growing concern given the, the size, the ideological divide between the sides uh, that we could see some disruption to the start of the 2022 season. So those are sort of the 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 issues in a nutshell. But you know, Chris, from your perspective, and what I want to get into here is really um, you know the the health of the sport from a from a broader standpoint, and particularly as it relates to fan development. That we've got a, a lot of you know, particularly compared to the last time we had a work stoppage in 1994-1995, so many more options for uh, consumers' time, attention, dollars here that. You know, they're, they're, the sport really seems to be playing with fire here. That you know, this could really serve as a, as a drag in terms of getting fans to be interested and stay interested in this sport. Totally agree, Eric. I mean, this is about dividing the pie, not growing the pie. Unfortunately, in terms of what the players and the owners are doing, and that means that we may not have baseball on time. That means we may have a lot of bad press over the next several weeks and months about you know, who's at fault and who won't be cooperative. You know, there were some good things last year, as we talked about the field of dreams games, the, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the betting and the NFTs and some of the new areas are exciting and, and are attractive to younger viewers and demographics. But overall, I think this could be a big hit to baseball. They already have, you know, declining ratings, demos, attendance down. So I think they really need to focus on getting their differences resolved and, and make every effort possible not to lose part of the season because it really could be, in my opinion, catastrophic from a fan development standpoint. Yeah, and it's really interesting because we haven't had a situation like this in North American sports at this scale really in about a decade. You know, we had a situation in the early 2010s where both uh, National Football League and the National Basketball Association went through some pretty significant issues. And now, You've got uh, you know labor peace uh, pretty much uh, locked in for uh, good chunks of time in both of those sports. Hockey just did an extension. Those kind of battles that we saw across North American sports in the seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, we're in a di- again, we're in a different sort of time frame here. Not to say that you know the internet and betting and everything else that is now in place here means that you can't have disagreements on some fundamental issues here but again the the landscape they're all competing for that fan entertainment time that entertainment dollar here and the landscape has just fundamentally changed and we are also still i think technically in a pandemic so right, uh, that, that's kind of an unusual thing you know just a footnote eric i i looked on the mlb.com website and they've taken the player images down i don't know if you noticed that but that kind of surprised me because that's kind of an editorial product at least when you talk about some of the team pages and things like that but that and i was trying to think back of when's the last time there's been a work stoppage and did people take pictures down off websites but it's 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 been a while yeah, it's interesting here. They really seem to be um, sort of breaking down the real sort of letter of the law on this one, that the way the um, there was language in the old CBA, where as part of the standard player contract that is baked into that larger CBA, uh, the clubs all had a range of publicity rights for the players that they could take their pictures, use their pictures and do all sorts of promotional things. And that was baked into the CBA. And now with the CBA having lapsed, 
they've taken all the league has taken all of that uh, content down basically to protect themselves against having a situation where they're out there promoting the players and leaving themselves vulnerable to a compensation situation. And so it's it's very much a legalistic uh, kind of thing. Now, yeah. the interesting footnote on on that one is if you go on the league's website, you can still buy a player jersey because that's governed under a wholly different set of things. That buying a player jersey with their name on the back, that is not governed by the CBA. That is a separate agreement between licensees of the league and the players union, and it's it's not baked into that collective bargaining agreement. It's actually a separate legal lane. Very interesting. Yeah, that's, that's that's a quirky phenomenon because, as you know, a lot of news websites will claim at some level uh, editorial privileges, public domain on certain kinds of editorial coverage around players and news and information. Uh, but the league is being cautious here, which I understand. It just it's just another signal, though, when you go onto the website and you see these kind of silhouettes that something is not something is not right, something's not happening here. And I think more broadly, the concern I would have if I was an owner is there's a lot of deals that are being done here over the next several weeks and months in the RSN space, which I know we'll talk about uh, in the, uh, the you know media space generally, in the betting space, in the NFT space. And when you're kind of on the sidelines, those are opportunities that that may pass you by. And, and that can be really challenging. That can certainly exacerbate an already difficult economic situation due to the pandemic. Yeah. And again, we're in this just this very high velocity era now that we have had work stoppages and labor unrest in North American sports in the social media era, but we haven't really had it in the TikTok era or the sort of fully mature Instagram era or whatever you want to call it. And it and it's going to be very interesting to see how that sort of manifests itself, particularly as it relates to public opinion and where sentiment lies during the course of this dispute, assuming that it takes weeks and months to unfold as, as we anticipate it will. And already, you know, the situation that you referenced with the uh, silhouetted faces and players out there sort of using that on their own social media and sort of making hay over that and sort of using that, you know, look what these owners did to us kind of thing. And already you're sort of seeing that drumbeat sort of move in that direction. And there's going to be a lot of twists and turns on this. And that's going to be yet just another interesting chapter to see how it unfolds through this thing. Yeah, I'm I'm sure both sides have uh, PR war rooms of sorts uh, that are that are functioning 24 hours a day and quick response teams and all of those things. Again, it's too bad that a lot of energy needs to be put behind that versus building the business going forward. I'd also say there are other, you know, there are local businesses in these markets that are going to be hurt. Uh, certainly the, the the ticketing industry will not fare well if we miss games. There's there's a lot of fragile companies around the sports ecosystem that really can't afford the lockout as much as, let's say, some of the billionaire team owners can. So we'll see uh, how quickly this gets resolved, but I do think a lot of people are nervous. Yeah, and particularly as it relates to things like broadcasting and ticketing and so forth and and where baseball sits in the calendar. It's a tonnage of games, uh, particularly in that Q2, early Q3 sort of window, and really sort of takes up a big chunk of a lot of these companies' respective fiscal years. And so your your point is very well taken that uh, as if this thing really stretches into a good chunk of 2022, uh, the damage is going to be pretty extensive and far beyond just the sort of owners and players themselves. 
And and as I was thinking about that, Eric, I was trying to think about, well, I mean, I hate to say it quite this way, but uh, who would benefit potentially if there was a a number of games that were lost or if the the season got started later? And I would say, you know, number one, it might be some other sports, emerging sports that might get those time slots, might get extra exposure, might get uh, some, some extra visibility. But also you could see the need for capital from some of these, you know, private equity firms that are looking to buy minority stakes if the issue of liquidity becomes a factor for certain teams who want to, you know, basically, you know, get some more cash in the door and that that could also be an opportunity in terms of what might happen with transactions. Again, we're speculating it's too early to to tell, but but those are things that it would be good to watch. Yeah, and if you're an esports entity or a startup uh, stick and ball sports entity, there could very well be some uh, inventory, particularly on the regional sports network side, that had traditionally been closed off that could soon open up. Yeah, and uh, you know the other we t- we talk a lot about the betting space on this podcast. Uh, that you know the betting space will be in an interesting dilemma because. Baseball is so much inventory. That's a big part of what happens in betting in those seasons. You know, I, I guess, you know, maybe the NBA and the NHL can pick up the slack. Maybe again, people start betting on ping pong again or some of these other sports uh, kind of come to the fore. But that also would probably be a concern for for the companies in the betting space if we lost games. Yeah. And so another entity that really sort of stands uh, vulnerable here and admitted as such, uh, giving us a bit of a transition here, is Sinclair Broadcast Group. And this is the operator of the Bally Sports uh, set of regional sports networks. Um, as we discussed uh, previously on the podcast, they are, they've been hard at work for a number of months trying to pull together really what would be a first in um, the North American sports media business, pulling together a uh, regionally based direct-to-consumer over-the-top streaming service where fans could subscribe and watch their local teams without the need of a cable or satellite subscription. And it's been sort of a bumpy road for them where they initially said they had the vast majority of, of rights for the teams in their portfolio to be able to do this. Then they said they only had four. And they've had an interesting piece of news uh, just in the last few days where they put together a big extension with the National Hockey League where they've got the 12 teams, uh, hockey teams in their portfolio, then they now have those rights. So there's a bit of a critical mass building there. So the the effort is gaining a little bit of steam here. But in the same breath, they came out and said, well, you know, if the the baseball lockout continues on, we may have, they were looking to uh, launch the service in uh, late March or early April, right around the start of the uh, baseball season. They may have to delay it because if there's not that tonnage of games with the start of the baseball season, you don't have that kind of critical mass that they wanted to have at, at the start of this product. So even as they're sort of gaining some uh, momentum on the right side here, that baseball situation continues to really cast a long shadow. It does, Eric, but you know, I do wonder whether this is going to give them both points you mentioned more leverage vis-a-vis MLB in terms of, uh, in, in a sense, being the center of that D to C business. Because I think the the way I see it, it, it looks like both Sinclair and MLB really want to be in control of the D to C world. And it, it also seems to me that at the end of the day, the consumer really just wants to buy one service. They don't want to have to buy three or four services in each market. They want to get all their sports in one bundle the way they already do with the RSNs. So to the extent that Sinclair has made progress in aggregating rights, 
I think that's important. I think to the extent that MLB is potentially distracted or dealing with other issues, I think that also in a way may give Sinclair some leverage as they figure out together how they split the pie and and really exploit this opportunity. Yeah. And your point is well taken because uh, Sinclair's also been hard at work on a similar deal with the NBA. And if they're pulling that together, then out of the 42 teams in their portfolio, they'd have 32 because it'd be 16 NBA teams, 12 uh, hockey teams, you know, and then uh, the handful of baseball teams here. And so they, they, you know, it really would be just down to, uh, you know, these uh, 10 sort of outliers on the MLB side. And so that tilt of uh, negotiating leverage, uh, you know, that we could see some shift there. I agree. And uh, again, you know, I think the issue of whether baseball starts on time is certainly, you know, not a pleasant thing to deal with for a Sinclair, but that may ultimately just be a temporary issue. I think building a long-term direct-to-consumer business that's profitable, that makes sense, that has the right set of rights that kind of jibes with what's going on in the regional sports network world, I think that's critical. And so this may be an opportunity for them to really gain gain some ground on that front. I think the other interesting thing I would be watching around this D2C business is how betting does get integrated into it. Obviously, these are called the Bally Networks, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these sports leagues want to be promoting Bally's in all of these these streaming broadcasts. They all have their own partners. So there'll be, my guess, is some kind of negotiation or discussion about how you integrate betting into these things as well. Yeah, and that's a really good point here because uh, it's important, you know, in the midst of all of this sort of day-to-day negotiating and what's going on with Sinclair stock, and it's easy to sort of get lost in the kind of the immediate noise. But if you sort of step back here, what Sinclair's trying to do is pretty radical on on multiple levels here that not only are they, from a rights and delivery standpoint, trying to do something on this regional D2C level that's never been done before, they're trying to, compl- at the same time, completely upend what the viewing experience is. And we've had some different alternate broadcasts of various things, but they've got a really pretty different notion of what watching a game in the future is going to be like. And it's sort of, as they've described it, sort of this really kind of high energy lean in kind of thing. That's almost a little bit more akin to what you're seeing now on CNBC, but then even more so where there's all sorts of information around the game action and opportunities to participate from a viewer gamification standpoint. And there's interactive components where you're able to do things from your home on your phone in coordination with the game. And, you know, it's it's all a complete, fairly aggressive rethinking of what that viewing experience could be like and sort of do both the content and the distribution in a whole new way at the same time. It's It's a pretty radical notion. It is, Eric. And, you know, how you execute that for different sports also depends upon the kind of the appetite of those individual sports to want to move in that direction. Obviously, you know, something like baseball has been trying to figure out how to, uh, in a sense, uh, get the younger demographics involved, get people sticking around for entire baseball games. So I think conceptually, those kind of ideas are good, but everybody, you know, sort of wants to control the production, control their destiny. So it'll be interesting to see how much input the leagues have in terms of what that all looks like and how their product is ultimately uh, deployed. Absolutely. So it's something that's really going to continue to bear watching, particularly as these negotiations between Sinclair and the NBA and and Major League Baseball continue. Shifting gears from uh, the 
strictly North American realm here to something of a more global sense. We saw an interesting fundraising uh, happening here in in recent days that we had a uh, fantasy sports company out of India called Dream Sports, and they've got a number of different facets here. They've got a really popular fantasy sports game there called Dream 11. They've got a digital media component. They've got a VC fund within their umbrella. Well, they put together an $840 million fundraising that gives them a new valuation of $8 billion. And that's just up by 60% from just uh, March, just uh, eight, nine months ago. So this is a company that's really sort of on a pretty aggressive growth trajectory. And not only do you have that, but uh, the kind of folks that they've been pulling in in terms of their new partners and, and names that we talked about in prior weeks of the po- podcast, uh, like Redbird Capital, uh, which obviously deeply involved with uh, Fenway Sports Group, and they've got the uh, one-team collective uh, with the licensing of the Players Union and you know, a number of other entities, and they, they bought some soccer teams and so forth. And so this really is uh, heralding that the, you know we've got another major player here on the scene that we're all going to need to be continuing to pay attention to, this dream sports, a uh, lot of capital and some really big aspirations. And you know, a valuation of of eight billion, Eric. I'm trying to think of how many sports entities, individual sports entities, have a valuation bigger than eight billion. Fanatics, obviously, there are some, but uh, that is an enormous number. And it you know is driven, I think, by the big user base they have and big business they have in India. It's driven by their ambitions to kind of be a broader digital sports company, which is why they set up this fund where they've used a lot of the capital that they've raised in recent years. But but you're right. I think that the getting Redbird involved, Tiger Global, some of these companies, I think it does indicate they've got global ambitions. The U.S. at some point has got to be important to them, whether it's on the ground in terms of executing product or whether it's the financial markets or whether it's in some way, shape, or form, strategic relationships, I would expect them to do more in the U.S. over the next couple of years. And uh, and I think this is an exciting company that not many people in the sports industry know about. Yeah. And just to put an even finer point on uh, on the point that you made uh, about the $8 billion, there's a only a small handful of North American pro sports franchises that would get that number if you put them out on the open market. Dallas Cowboys, New York Yankees, Los Angeles Lakers, Golden State Warriors maybe. Uh, you know, But the list is really small. So just to, again, to really emphasize, this is a massive number we're talking about here. Absolutely. And, and again, it's a, a massive number without, uh, and this is what's hard for probably people in the U.S. sports industry to, to, to recognize, without really having a big U.S. presence. And there aren't, again, that many companies that, that are able to do that. But this, you know, obviously India is a huge market. They've been very successful there. I think, you know, there are some concerns about, you know, fantasy sports and betting. And there's, there's, as, as we saw in the U.S. with the, with the daily fantasy ups and downs over the years from a regulatory standpoint, there is always, there are always those clouds on the horizon of, of how the regulatory market is going to look at some of these things. But this company has done extremely well and is, is very well positioned for the future. Yeah. And I, and I think it also really just emphasizes what a robust, interesting and, and opportunistic market India could be for a lot of entities and particularly you know, for a lot of leagues and sports industry entities, you know, India was almost sort of, uh, you know, sort of second 
sidecar entity or 1B to a China. But if you look at what's sort of happening from a human rights perspective in China, it's very easy to see that as, as big an economic market is a lot of entities sort of pulling back or maybe downplaying some of what they're doing in China and really focusing that much more on India. Yeah, I do think that could be a, a result of, as you say, some of the political issues, but also some of the success like Dream 11. But we had the, the CEO of Mobile Premier League on, I guess, five, six weeks ago, another company out of India, a little bit different slant in terms of their focus, but really uh, a tremendous success there as well. So I, I do think that's going to raise awareness and get more companies excited about the opportunity in India. Something we're obviously going to continue to watch here. But uh, as we close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we want to get a sense of what else is catching our eye on the space. And uh, Chris, you were on the conference circuit this week. I was, Eric. I was in uh, at the Meadowlands Expo Center, uh, probably nearby where, where you actually live, uh, yep. but uh, was there for a couple of days for the sports betting conference. Very good energy. A lot, you know, people from all over the world there, a lot of excitement, a lot of bullishness about the long-term prospects of sports betting. But at the same time, we've seen over the last several weeks, a number of these companies that are public get beaten up in the stock market. Uh, many of them are dealing with 52-week lows or you know, sort of near there. So you've got these two dynamics, which is a view that long-term betting continues to be a huge opportunity. But in the short run, there's starting to be some questions about, well, do you need to be profitable? Do you need to, to kind of cut the losses a little bit? And so we'll see whether that affects you know, M&A activity next year, consolidation, other other areas of growth. So it was definitely a very good couple of days, but the mood overall was very positive. Yeah. And on a related note for any listeners on Twitter, I, I highly suggest checking out the uh, recent feed of Jason Robbins, the uh, co-founder, chairman and chief executive of DraftKings. He's been uh, pretty spicy of late, uh, you know, uh, advocating along the lines of uh, uh, that Chris is describing here for his company and sort of firing back at some short sellers and so forth. It's been uh, entertaining reading. From my standpoint, I wasn't able to get to uh, that that conference. I was at the uh, March of Dimes uh, Sports Luncheon in New York, which is uh, annually one of the the great events uh, in our business. And uh, you know, nice to be back at that and, and see a bunch of folks I had not seen from seen in a long time. Uh, but what I wanted to address was the college football playoff. Uh, you know, we're taping this just before the uh, conference championships and a, and a big set of games uh, on the first weekend of December. The day after this episode drops, we're going to get the uh, final matchups for the college football playoff. And we could be looking at some history here where the University of Cincinnati, which is currently part of the uh, American Athletic Conference, they're in the midst of going uh, to the Big 12, but they're not there yet. And if they were to make it into that final set of four, they would be the first non-Power 5 program in the history of the CFP uh, to make it, which would be uh, a big deal in and of itself, but perhaps also give a little bit more energy to the uh, ongoing discussions to expanding the CFP. Uh, there was another meeting uh, the other day about that uh, among a, a number of the conference commissioners. They're, we don't have a consensus yet. We have an ideological consensus, and George Kliakoff from PAC-12 was on the podcast a few weeks ago speaking about that. But uh, as he indicated, and others have indicated the devils in the details and sort of how many teams and when and you know who qualifies and how uh you know there's still a lot of uh questions to be answered on that front but if Cincinnati were to make it 
you know, from where I sit, I, I think that sort of just gives a little bit more energy to, you know, having more and different teams in the final field is a good thing all around. I agree with you, Eric. When do you think this change would happen? Do you think it's as early as next season or do you think it's we're two, three, four years out? What's your sense? Probably, of probably the latter. There's a lot of, um, issues that need to be resolved, particularly around the existing TV rights and, you know, sort of how you fold that out and how you sort of go to market. Because if you got this great new asset, you know, yeah, you could stick with ESPN, but, um, you know, wouldn't you want to put it out to the market and see what else, you know, is out there? And is there, you know, if you're expanded, do you have multiple players for the reasons that we've described, uh, you know, with other properties having multiple pro- partners here? So that's really one of the big uh, hangups at this point is how you sort of do the expansion and then resolve the uh, the media rights situation. Yeah, I, I would be very excited if they moved to 12 teams. I think it'd be great for ratings, great for the industry, transformational, because not only would you have, as we discussed before, the 12 folks that got in, but the other 12 to 15 folks that felt they had a shot up until the last week. So that creates a lot of excitement and, and a lot of energy among these uh, these alumni groups, which I think is very helpful. Yeah, it basically replicates the basketball model. And, you know, as we discussed, March Madness is one of the great things in all of North American sports. So, you know, if there's an opportunity to build something like that and with something as popular as football, why not? Exactly. So I'm optimistic, but as you say, maybe a couple of years down the road. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 